Almost a year and a half into lockdowns, it's important to look at how our politics and our government are affecting the future of the country and our young people. Have they been left behind? Or are they moving ahead of us, already laser-focused on solving the stubborn issues that have tripped up other generations? If our guest this week is any indication, they are essential to strengthening our politics, giving us new ideas and making sure our democracy continues to inspire people at home and abroad. This week, I'm excited to be joined by Victor Xi. He's the youngest delegate for Joe Biden in 2020, and he now is a member of the Politicon family. He co-hosts Politicon's iGen Politics with Joe Weinbanks. It's a podcast looking at our laws, our government, and our politics through a multi-generational lens. Can Victor and his demographic inspire the country, preserve our voting rights, and keep expanding our liberties before it's too late? And I'll ask him, how the heck are we going to get along? Where do you live? So I'm currently in Chicago, and today actually happens to be the first day of Lollapalooza. Um, And... It's and, and here of... you are stuck with me. <laughs> hey, I, I, I'd rather be here. It's, it's <laughs> so many people, and um, I am quite actually worried about what's going to happen, but we'll see. Is it, well, oh, you, what do you mean worried about what? Like people um, acting a fool so, uh, or COVID? COVID, COVID. Really? It's, I think, I think there are supposed to be like 100,000 people coming, and... Um, they're all Do you think the Lollapalooza no crowd is a vaccinated crowd or a non-vaccinated crowd? I feel like they're vaccinated, don't you? So they're they're requiring vaccines. Oh, um, so yeah, so I, I hope hope that everyone is. Yeah, right. So if they've required them, is there anything for you, is there anything to worry about if everybody's vaccinated? I guess not, but I, I just hope. Um, like I, I'm, I don't know how how savvy uh, people are in like like forging vaccine cards, or I think you. So it's either you have a vaccine card or you show a negative test, um, and that has to be done. Like this test has to be negative within like 72 hours, right. I think. Yeah. Well, so I mean, at some point, are are you are you nervous that we're gonna? Are you more nervous that people will get sick or? more nervous that we will end up having to live in this state of semi-panic and fear for a long time? Oh, I'd say both. I, really? I think if it's sick, Lightfoot, I think next week uh, she, she plans, uh, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago, she's, I think, intending on reinstating some restrictions depending on how, law, depending how things go. But um, Now you've I'm, gotten your shot. I've gotten both my shots, yeah. And how old are you now? Are you... You're, 18 now? Uh, just turned 19, or oh. not just actually, it's been a, a month and a half, so okay, turned so 19 and, and got my vaccine. Okay, <laughs> so. so you're vaccinated. Do you, does, I mean, I, it's interesting to me to, to ask someone of, God, God, it makes me feel so old, of your generation to even say that, to ask, you know, you are just now able to get into the world, right, as an adult, and yet the world is not open for you. Does that make you nervous? Does it make you a little bit pissed? Um, but, I mean, how do you feel that your adulthood is starting out in a way that nobody else's really has had to? Did you have, did you, you were in high school last year or you finished the year before? 
So I finished the year before. So it was like March and then COVID hit. And then my senior year was that year and graduated virtually. And then uh, yeah, first so year does of it, college was... Does it piss you off that you didn't get to walk in cap and gown like everyone else did? And that your first year in, in college was not in the same sort of situ- dorm situation that everybody else has had? Honestly, so I, I, I've had so many conversations with my friends about this. For high school, I particularly wasn't that sad not to be able to walk down the um, you know high school graduation um, stage only because our high school was huge and so it would have taken a long time. So I actually preferred graduating virtual. But my first year of college, that was really, um, I, I, I felt a lot of kind of just sadness around like not being able to experience freshman year the same. But Honestly, now looking back on it, I think, you know, if it weren't for the pandemic, I wouldn't have met Jill. I wouldn't have been able to kind of do what I did virtually. So in a way, it's, it's, it, there, there were opportunities that came about, but also it was kind of unfortunate that, you know, my first year was at home and um, not on campus. Um, well, listen, uh, mad props to you for having that sort of attitude of, of finding the silver lining, finding the positive in situations. Um, Speaking of Jill, that's another person who sings your praises and loves you. I spoke to her a few weeks ago, and she was talking about uh, loving to get to talk to you on iGen Politics. I am so fascinated by the concept of that podcast in general, but how did you, I mean, kind of give me a little bit of a background on how you became so involved in politics at a young age. I loved politics when I was a teenager and in high school also, but I was certainly not a delegate for a president for, for Bill Clinton when I was in high school, like you were for Biden, the youngest ever, I think, right? So it's it's so funny because both of my parents, so they they both immigrated from China, uh, from Beijing, China, and they are not politically involved at all. My, my, my dad is an engineer for AT&T. My mom is a financial analyst for, um, for U.S. Bank, and they both also are to the right of me politically. They both voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And my fascination with politics really began when I was in eighth grade. I was sitting in my um, eighth grade social studies classroom, and, and it was um, right the, the week before the Iowa caucuses. It was this kind of contentious moment because it was Hillary running, it was Bernie running, and then also we had Trump running. And my teacher, all of a sudden, she just started explaining the political spectrum and kind of what each party believes in. And then at the end, she told us all, like, as young people, like, you guys can really make a difference if you guys get involved in politics, if you guys make your voices heard. And so it was really hearing that that got me involved. What did she uh, say the parties believed in? Can you remember? She was basically... So, so she basically was like she, she spoke more about kind of the partisanship at the time and, and the divisions between the two parties that Democrats uh, really cared about social values and, and really cared about um, issues that you know mattered to the economy. They were bold. They really kind of made forth with these like progressive issues. On the Republican side, she really she was a bit biased in this sense, but she really didn't like Donald Trump, and she sure. thought that you know Republicans were this you know they they believe in small government, they really believe in you know personal freedom, and so those were kind of the values. And then she at the end kind of had us identify where we stood, and then it was not until the end of the classroom that she kind of gave this like motivating speech where it was like you know like as young people you guys can get involved and, and make your voices heard. How does that did that make you uncomfortable? Did that make people in the classroom uncomfortable to have the teacher say this one party feels these positive things, this other party doesn't? 
now tell me where you stand? Did that make people nervous, or do you think people were able to be honest? Honestly, I think eighth graders at the time were a bit oblivious or didn't, or, or they, they weren't quite in tune with what she had to say. But I found it just so fascinating knowing that, you know, there's, there's this world in which you have political parties and you have, you know, people running to become president of the United States and you have, you know, these different values and, and you kind of identify yourself with one of these values. And, you know, I knew like little to nothing at the time. And it was just kind of knowing that this political world existed and this world existed that really valued um, young people at the time and still does um, who got involved. And so I Do just found that fascinating. Do you think the world values young people? I really do, especially in politics. What I found is that I really feel like politics is a true meritocracy in the sense that, you know, for me, I was a volunteer for like four years on a campaign. I, you know, made phone calls, text banked, and really all my friends who I know who kind of are now experienced in politics, they really kind of feel the same way in that, you know, in politics, you start small, but if you like put in the work, if you do what you're asked to do, it really kind of lets you blossom. And the younger age that you start, the more opportunities people give you. And I really think that in politics, young people have a substantial voice, a substantial value. Um, And I think candidates really realize that. And I think that was evident in 2016, but certainly in 2020. Did you find yourself wanting to be involved in the party and wanting to be a delegate because you particularly liked one candidate in per- specifically or you just identified with the party itself? So it, for me, it was definitely more the candidate. I was torn between Kamala and uh, Biden, which is, I guess, it was, it was odd at the time. Really? Because she, a... she dropped out real soon. So wh- how torn could <laughs> yeah, you have been dropped... for long? <laughs> so, I, so like a lot of young people, um, I found President Biden to, you know, really kind of follow that old school style of thinking where, you know, it was really just working together, not really bold solutions. Kamala kind of represented this new voice in that she was diverse. She really gave me, at least as an Asian American, some sort of representation. And as the primary run on, I think it was for me kind of knowing how big of a threat Donald Trump posed and kind of knowing who could beat Donald Trump. And for me, after kind of seeing the evolution of Kamala's campaign, seeing Warren's campaign, seeing, you know, other campaigns kind of crumble as the primary season went on, I thought that Biden really had the best shot of winning against Trump. And so that was part of the reason why I ran to become a delegate, but also because I thought he had the values that would help him win. So you didn't necessarily, so it wasn't enthusiasm for him so much as a, we need this guy because he's the one who can beat Trump. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that worked this time, right? For him. Do you think it, I mean, it hasn't, doesn't usually work though, does it? I mean, it, what's more powerful, what's a more powerful motivator a candidate who inspires people to follow them or running on a platform of anti the other side? Does that question make any sense whatsoever? You know, I guess candidates in the past, in in the past, in my lifetime, God, I feel again old, um, (laughs) have run for something and been successful, but it feels like more and more often the successful politicians tend to be those who are running against something else. Uh, Donald Trump was running mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. Um, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and the scary socialist liberals who were trying to turn us into Cuba. Um, wh- what 
if you did you not follow Biden for some of those same reasons because you just didn't like Trump? So it was at first I thought um, when I first ran to become delegate or when I first got involved in his campaign, it was really kind of knowing that Joe Biden could beat Donald Trump and that it was, you know, we're against Donald Trump and, you know, I just want to see Donald Trump out of office. But I think it was so interesting because the 2020 election, as I kind of now look back, it's so clear that Donald Trump, I think, could well have won if it weren't for his incompetence and um, his lack of, I guess, character and responsibility. And I think as the campaign went on, it was not so much more that I agreed with Biden's policies, but I think it was just the moment that our country found itself in. Um, and, and what I mean by that, I think, is just, you know, after going through so much in the pandemic, after going through so much vitriol with Donald Trump throwing names at, you know, his political opponents, for me, it was just Biden's outlook on the world as the campaign went on, his vision to unite America. And I think, you know, it sounds a little bit you know, at the time, it's, I guess now looking back, I guess it sounds a little bit kind of um, maybe naive to think that that was possible. I think really in the moment, his vision of, or at least his intentions of uniting the country at the time was really powerful. And that's, I think, a big reason why people voted for him. And I think why young people thought, you know, even though I don't support his policies or he's not so much, you know, against Donald Trump, you know, we just need change. And I think Biden offered that in some way by uniting the country. Do you still think that what you said you thought it was maybe naive? Do you think today that it was naive or do you think he's done that? Um, so I'll look toward voting rights on that. You know, I think the other day he said, you know, we can out-organize voting rights. And, you know, he gave this big speech in um, uh, Pennsylvania. And, and, you know, it seems like he still holds on to a lot of his experience as a senator when I think bipartisanship and, you know, consensus was possible in the Senate. And I just feel like in so many people who are involved in voting rights, so many young people who think in terms of bold solutions, systemic reforms, just think that his rhetoric and isn't really matching his actions, or I guess his actions aren't matching his rhetoric. Um, you know, he, he still is hesitant about getting rid of the filibuster. He's not so much um, kind of, he still believes that bipartisanship, bipartisanship is possible, but I just don't think that's possible anymore. And I think at some point he's going to have to confront that reality of, well, you know, Republicans are going to keep doing what you've they're You've sort of cherry-picked voting rights specifically, mm -hmm. but that's sort of ironic given that just this week he and 67 senators voted for, well, he didn't vote for anything, but you know what I'm saying, 67 senators voted for um, to progress his transport his infrastructure package um that's bipartisanship isn't it i mean in, in at the same time that was happening in the senate you had liz cheney and adam kensinger joining with democrats in the house to uh investigate the insurrection on january 6th i mean don't it doesn't it matter the lens you look at it through i mean if you're if you want to if you want to be able to make the argument that Joe Biden is wrong and there is no case for bipartisanship, yeah, you can put your blinders on and look specifically at one particular issue about not getting rid of the filibuster. But if you want to make the argument that, okay, maybe he's not wrong, 67 senators getting together and voting on anything, um, 17 Republicans joining with Democrats to vote on anything is certainly hasn't happened in the last 12 years that I can think of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right in that respect. But I would also point out, you know, just how long it took to get to this point. It was a key procedural vote, from what I understand. And I think just the you know Biden at first proposed this massive infrastructure plan that included you know human infrastructure, these kind of going beyond what we call like I guess traditional infrastructure. And it got a lot to get to the point of where we are. It got a lot of trimming, a lot of cutting, and I guess you know did get 67 votes. But I think. Just the fact that, you know, we've made this meme of, you know, infrastructure week, infrastructure day for more than two years now, um, that it took us two years to reach agreement on something as simple as, I think, infrastructure. Well, it took us sad and it, it took us 150 days to reach agreement. I mean, yeah. it, this has only been 150 days in the Biden presidency, right? He hasn't had he can't be blamed for the other That's sitting true. on your hands time, right? That's true. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And I and and I guess, you know, it's just if it takes something as I guess as simple as infrastructure, 150 days to work out or so much negotiation. And I think that infrastructure is something simple. I think infrastructure is something that improves people's lives. And I think that when we see so much partisanship on something as simple of as simple as infrastructure, it kind of creates, I think, um, I guess, more of this kind of sense that, you know, Republicans and Democrats won't be able to find any other consensus on bigger issues like, you know, um, you know, finding consensus on climate change or voting rights. Um, well, I was going to get so excited about you, Victor, because you seem to have such a positive, you call it naive, I don't call it naive, you have this positive <laughs> attitude and this upbeat um, idealism for, for politics in America. But now you're bringing me down with you all of a sudden to this, this, this idea that you don't think that it's possible. And, you know, the purpose, you and Jill Weinbanks, um, as I've said, have this really interesting podcast where you compare your not just political opinions, but you both are on the same side of the aisle, but you have vast age difference between the two of you. And I think that's just a fascinating way to look at issues. Here on this show, we ask um, how it's possible to get along. And and I'll ask you that more as we go on. But I sometimes wonder if people want to. Do you think people want to get along? Because it it would seem to me that if people wanted to get along, they would cheer for a win, for a bipartisan win, instead of saying... Okay, we'll find infrastructure was easy, and these other things are going to be really hard, and there's not going to be there's not going to be bipartisanship, and people aren't going to work together. Uh, in in order to have that success, someone Joe Biden in this particular case, and and I've owned that bias, and people know that I like him, but someone had to have the faith that it was going to happen in the first place, that it was possible, while a bunch of folks said, Joe Biden, you're old and you don't know what you're talking about and your you know, bipartisanship is dead. Someone had to say, no, I'm, I'm right. Um, it is still possible. And then look, today or this week, it did happen. Do you think that people need to believe that it's possible first before it can happen? Or is or, – or, or, it's how much of a self-fulfilling prophecy is um, partisanship? So I, I guess first, I, I, I agree. I think that there should, in general, we should celebrate the infrastructure plan, I guess, in the sense that we were able to get 17 Republicans on board and that that was a moment to come together. But I think also we should recognize that it, was, it, that it took 150 days, like you said, to get that done. And I, I came across a, something that I found really interesting, and that 
was basically the number of Americans who identify as either Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. And what they found was that usually it's a third, a third, a third, where a third identifies Democrats, a third identifies Republicans, a third identifies as Independents. And now it's that 40% of Americans identify as uh, independents, 30% as uh, Republicans, 30% as um, Democrats. And my initial impression when reading that statistic was that I thought that bipartisanship, at least in terms of the American people, was possible. That we, because we identify as independents, somehow we could reach more consensus on different issues. But one of the most fascinating aspects about that poll, I thought, was that people are still voting for the same candidates or for the same party. That 40% are still voting for the same people. And so I think in turn, what that really raised to me was that our whole incentive structure, at least for Congress people and people who are supposed to represent us, is backwards in the sense that they get more extreme and they don't find any willingness to change um, because their voters are still going to vote for them. Well, and so, if, I mean, I think there's one one mistake that often is made, in my opinion, in the media is mm-hmm. when we present these three pockets of voters, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, mm-hmm. they always make the mistake of putting the independents in between the Republicans and Democrats. And being independent in America although it may look like it on paper, does not mean being moderate. And there are so, 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 so many of those people in that independent bucket who are arguably more conservative than Republicans or more liberal than Democrats who don't fit in a moderate. Independent does not mean conservative. When I ran for Congress myself, there were a lot of independents, but trust me, in the district I ran in, they were all hardcore Tea Party, um, what would today be MAGA um, voters, just because they were independent didn't mean they were going to vote. They might change parties. You're talking about, I think, um, the incentive for um, the, the, the reasons that we need to change some of the structural components of our voting system, our electoral system. How did you feel about um, Joe Manchin's um, compromise proposal um, that he presented in the Senate a few, about a month or so ago? Uh, Regarding voting rights, right? Right. So I thought it was a step forward. I thought a lot of what he included was, I think, a good faith effort to reach across the aisle um, but what I think in terms of Gen Z and, and how young people think is that at some point, I think we can't just settle for the bare minimum in terms of, you know, there's going to be gerrymandering. Republicans feel the urge to keep obstructing, to keep gerrymandering districts. And I think at some point, Democrats really need to be bold and pass the For the People Act, pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. But didn't Act Joe Manchin's get- thing get rid of gerrymandering? I mean, Joe Manchin's proposal, his compromise included um, mandatory nonpartisan redistricting commissions across the country, right? Yes, but I, I also I, I don't think it included things like um, you know getting rid of dark money in politics or some of those more kind of structural campaign right. finance reform Correct. issues. And it was really interesting because when it talks when we when we talk about democracy, and for me specifically, I think I was um, I had the fortune of um, 
working with Larry Lessig, uh, my junior year of high school, on democracy issues. And I think he really kind of put it best when it was, you know, when we think about democracy, it's not that it's like the most, I guess, important issue. It's just that we need a representative democracy if we want to achieve things like climate change and you know other issues. And so I think when we talk about reforming democracy, we have to include everything. We have to go bold. Otherwise, I think especially in this polarized kind of partisan world, it's going to take such a long time to get piecemeal uh, uh, things passed in Congress. And so I think we really need to go bold unless... Uh, but would, or it else not, I think, would it not take longer to do nothing? I'm just pushing back at you here for for mm-hmm. for fun, um, uh, and and I know Jill occasionally does the same. Would it not take as much time, even more time, if nothing was done? So so give me because you've talked about voting rights. So I want to stay on that for a second. What would be the most important components of um, necessary structural changes to our voting system and democracy for you, for Victor? What would those be? Making Election Day a holiday, um, I think, really gives everyone the ability to vote, makes it an even playing field. But I think we have to go even more kind of systemic, you know, reforming our campaign finance system, thinking of different ways for voters to, you know, contribute differently. There's been different proposals like um, a small donor matching program where we really incentivize instead of these big donors, more smaller donors, really getting regular people involved. I think... Um, you know, we really have to change how we think about, um, you know, our ballot system. New York City implemented uh, ranked choice voting. That I find fascinating in terms of kind of looking at how we can change our ballot structure to get more people involved. Um, and I think lastly, uh, I'm mm-hmm. writing them down because I, I want to keep up with you. Lastly, the Electoral College is a huge issue, especially now. Um, after, you know, in my lifetime, at least, I was born, I think, um, yeah, I was born after 2000, but I was I lived through the 2016 election, but it was within 16 years we had two elections in which um, the winner of the popular vote lost the election because of the Electoral College. And so I think we have these systemic kind of structural issues, and I think those kind of four main categories, um, campaign finance, uh, making Election Day a holiday, changing our ballot structure, and then also uh, the Electoral College. Did um, you? Can, should I add? For me. You mentioned gerrymandering before, but this is not. And on gerrymandering, your list. yes. Okay. Sorry, gerrymandering as well. Because yeah. I uh, hate gerrymandering more than anything, so <laughs> I want to add it to your list. So let me let me just now let's throw in some of the issues that that the other side um, uh, argues about. Um, mm-hmm. They have wanted voter ID for a while. Um, wanted to make it more restrictive. Uh, They have wanted to do away with mail-in balloting. Um, I guess I know at times, and and I know the arguments against, that I would use against them is, oh my God, places like Utah and Washington State and several states have used mail-in balloting for decades and you didn't have a problem with it then, um, so why? So so why are you worried about it now? Um, why do you think they're worried about it now? I think because it's getting more extreme. Um, mail-in so, balloting. I guess the restriction of mail-in balloting, the the requirement of more ID laws. I think Democrats and and from. I guess just my own view is that I think we need security in our elections. I don't think that we should have, you know, no IDs. But I think that, you know, having some form of ID is important. Having some, you know, having mail-in ballots is an important option. But I think so. Now, would you give some- in? So would you give in and accept some sort of voter ID uh, in exchange to get one? In exchange for getting one of these other things on your list here? 
I, I think the reason why I, I think that we should go bold and include all of those different components is only because we have such short election cycles and because Democrats have this moment now in the Senate, in the House, and the presidency to get this stuff done, I think we have to seize upon it and actually get it done. Otherwise, in 2022, it seems like the House is vulnerable. State legislatures across the country might get more Right, Republican. but that sounds so, to me, Victor, like you are worried about it because the House is vulnerable for Democrats, right? Republicans think it's vulnerable. Th- that's that's a good thing for them. I mean, do we need to get it done because it's the right thing to do, or do we need to get it done because if we don't, we might lose the House? Both. I think it's the right thing to do because it protects our democracy, it strengthens our democracy, gives more representation to people, but also because well, so, if we don't so do it So someone in Wisconsin, I'm sorry, in Wyoming or Montana would not agree with you when it comes to uh, that argument for the Electoral College, because if I live in Wyoming or Idaho and you get rid of the Electoral College, then I, you know, can strongly say, well, damn, my vote's going to count even less now because urban voters and suburban voters are going to always vote in a block and rural, you know, ranch hands from Montana and and Wyoming are going to vote in a block. And therefore, you know, the Electoral College is the only thing that's protecting me as a voter in uh, in Wyoming, how do you respond to them? I think when we think about the the key principles of our democracy, this notion of one person, one vote, equal representation, I think you know, sure, the electoral college somehow gives Wyoming or rural areas more of a voice than urban areas. But there is also some statistics out there that say if all the urban areas vote for one party over another, it still wouldn't have any significant effect on who wins the election because you need to reach more than 50% or you need to win you know, 50% or the majority of the votes. So your vote would still count if you live in a rural area. It's just that you wouldn't have electors representing you. It would be you going to the ballot box and it would be your vote solely for whoever you vote for. And um, we just don't have electors representing you in that sense. But it kind of fulfills that notion of one person, one vote. Or But we aren't necessarily... We aren't necessarily, I mean, again, I'm being de- playing devil's advocate mm-hmm. for you because you're ridiculously smart and clearly going to be governor or president yourself someday. Um, so <laughs> let me prep you for your debates. Um, we're not a country that votes for the president. We are a federation of states. We are a republic that has 50 states, and those 50 states vote for president, right? I mean, prior to the uh, 17th Amendment, I'm not sure which one it was, prior to one of the amendments, we didn't even vote for our senators. Our state legislatures voted for each state senator. So we are, you know, the state of North Carolina is is casting uh, 15 electoral votes for President Trump for Donald Trump, while the state of Georgia is casting its 15 electoral votes for Joe Biden. Aren't are, are we so media? Is our media so nationalized that we forget that we aren't a country of 330 million people so much as we are a collection of 50 separate states with different laws and different interests? I think things are so driven by national headlines that we sometimes lose sight of that fact. And I, um, if, I, if I'm understanding the question correctly, I think 
you know, I think having these national elections for presidency, for congressional races, for Senate races, they're important. And I think that's part of the reason why you see turnout so much higher for those races compared to local elections and state elections. And I think in part that's because we have we have put things in such national terms that we forget about what's happening in our local politics. And I think that's something that's just as concerning, getting people to care about local politics, their state representative, their school board member, um, while also still caring about national politics and, and, and who gets elected as president and um, how their vote is significant on that national scale. But I think if you think in terms of local and then national, you start to realize that your vote has a bigger impact than if you were to think, I think, from national to local, if that makes sense. Because um, if you think in terms of national terms, for me at least, it would seem like if I'm living in Illinois and if I vote for Joe Biden, you know, my vote won't count because I'm in a blue state. Whereas if I start thinking locally, I know that my vote counts because I have an influence. And then knowing, kind of placing myself in this broader picture, I know that somehow it does still count even though I'm you know, in a blue state. So I want to go back to your to your list. I've got six things. Mm-hmm. National holiday, campaign finance, ballot structure, electoral college, gerrymandering. If I said to you, okay, well, we're going to have to take electoral college off of this list simply because Congress can't change that. That's a constitutional mm-hmm. issue that has right. to be amended. The Constitution would have to be amended. Um, and I'll give you the national holiday if you'll give me voter ID requirements in every state. Um, But I can't do anything about campaign finance right now. So I get voter ID, you get the national holiday, you get, well, tell you what, I can do something with finance because it's national. I can't do anything about ballot structure because I have to leave that to the state. But I'll give you the holiday, I'll give you campaign finance, and I'll give you gerrymandering reform um, if you give me voter ID. Are you saying you wouldn't be okay with that? Well, I guess my, my, my one question, what type of voter ID would – because if, if it goes like right now where it's, it's one form of voter ID, it's you know driver's license, some sort of kind of certification that you're a citizen – is there any additional voter ID you would add sure. to that list? Sure. We can give you other voter IDs, okay. and we'll also okay. make it free to get them, and we'll make them uh, even make them available to you, everyone at their local post office. Um, we'll do everything we can to make the voter IDs as available and as many different possible ones as, po- as, as we can. Let's assume that we make it. We let's assume we make that voter ID provision something that you're satisfied with. But I can't do anything about ballot structure, and I can't do anything about the electoral college. You still okay with it? I mean, I we're not voting say, for anything right now, but <laughs> I would say okay. So that's not what I prefer right now, only because I knowing what's happening in state legislatures across the country. Um, that they're still being aggressive in terms of restricting votes. And unless I think Congress can enact something so sweeping and so large in scale and scope that it can counter what state legislatures are doing, I'm not sure I would quite be satisfied with that exchange. So, I think if we so then the alternative, on- though, is to do nothing, right? Because right here, you got your holiday, you got your gerrymandering reform, and you got some sort of campaign finance reform. But if you don't take this deal, I'm taking it off the table and you can walk away with jack shit, right? So, but it sounds like you're willing to say, well, then I'll take nothing. I think we can do something, but that requires Democrats like 
mansion and cinema to actually, <laughs> I guess, vote to get rid of the filibuster, really use the tools available in the but Senate. But Joe to Manchin get that just done. offered all of those things. He offered the holiday. He offered the gerrymandering reform. Um, he gave in on voter ID with some guardrails, obviously. Um, but it didn't go anywhere. I mean, I, I, guess, I guess the point is, the, the question I'm really trying to ask is, do we want to get rid of the filibuster simply because we don't want to ever have to work with the other side at all? I mean, it sounds like the alternative here is either I get everything I want, everything I want exactly the way I want it, or y'all can just go screw and I'll wait and hope to God that I get power at some point again. I mean, is that so? So when we ask our title question, how the heck are we going to get along? The answer to me seems right now and I'm not putting this on you, but I'm thinking about this transportation uh, compromise and people in the, on the far left like AOC and Rashida Tlaib have said, good luck getting this to pass the House. Uh, Peter DeFazio, who's uh, the head of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, has said, this is not near good enough. We're, I'm not going to vote for it. I'm against it. And I think, well, the alternative, though, is to get none of that money. Like, you can either take one and a half trillion dollars – or you can take zero dollars. And it sounds like Peter DeFazio and maybe you and some folks who, you, who agree with you will take the zero. Is that what I'm hearing? I think so. We'll settle for something small, but I think for, for people like me, for young people, for people who really are pushing President Biden to be bold and pushing members like Manchin and Sinema to be bold is just rethinking how we think about politics, especially in this moment right now. I think if it was a world in which bipartisanship existed, in which state legislatures across the country weren't so driven on restricting votes, passing these votes, passing these laws that would make it harder for people to vote, for people of color to vote. I would be fine, I think, with a bipartisan consensus. But what I'm worried about is that something like Joe Manchin's bill or some small watered-down version isn't nearly enough to confront the challenges that we have ahead of us. Okay, so then we have nothing, right? So we do nothing in the Senate, right? And then the State House in Georgia and the State House in Texas and the State General Assembly in North Carolina, they're still going to do all that shit, right? The, some of these some of these states that are passing incredibly restrictive, and I agree with you, very restrictive um, voter denial. It's not voter access. Um, keeping keeping uh, ballot access very restricted. They're still going to do that, right? So I understand. I guess I hear what you're saying about we need to do something big enough to counter that. But if the alternative is. trillion or $0, knowing that we don't really have any control over what they do at the state houses, right? We can't. As much as I'd love to walk into the North Carolina General Assembly and get rid of our uh, Republican-led speaker and Senate Majority Leader, I can't. And they're going to pass what they want to pass. I can't control what they do, but I can control what I do in the Senate or the House in the U.S. Congress. $1.5 trillion or 0 What's your choice? So 
I, I guess the obvious answer is 1.5 then, but I think that this whole conversation that Democrats are having in terms of thinking bold, really pushing forward these big packages, you know, I think at the end of the day, if we do get something like Manchin's bill passed or um, this $1.5 trillion bill passed instead of the original price tag, I think $3 trillion, we'll settle for it. But the conversation that Democrats are having, that young people are having now is to, I think, change how we think about you know, when we are in power, I think we need to confront these systemic issues head on or else I don't think that we have time to do it. If, de- if Democrats lose the house in 2022, we won't have any chance. So I think, are we'll we in power right now? Like that, but- are we in power because we have a majority of people who agree with us or are we in power only because there are really only two options and you either have to put an R behind your name or a D behind your name and folks like John Tester and Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin chose the D over the R, but they don't really agree with the Cory Bookers and the Bernie Sanders of the world. I mean, if we had, if we had more than just those two letters, would they be Ds or would they be, you know, whatever the other options were? It, should we have more than two parties? Honestly, I think that we should have more than two parties. And part of the reason I think is because of that issue of, I think we think of ter- in terms of Democrats, Republicans, independents, but sadly, I don't think, or I guess Democrats and Republicans, but, you know, I just don't think in our world right now, we become so polarized and so partisan that that's, I think, the reality that we're living in, in that we separate ourselves in these two camps in Republican and Democratic terms. And therefore, that's what power means to us now. And so I think we have to kind of use what we have. I don't think, you know, a third party is really going to be successful. But until that happens, I think we have to deal with the camps that we're in and kind of try to use what, where we fall in the best way possible. And I think for Democrats, that right now is unfortunately because of the slim majorities we have. But is it fair really to look to at someone like boldly. Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema and say just because they chose to have the D behind their name, they're bad D's because they don't agree with Elizabeth Warren? Or they're bad D's because they don't agree with Cory Booker. Um, I guess in that same situation, I can't. Trump himself came out just today criticizing a whole bunch of people in his own party for daring to sign on to this infrastructure bill, calling them rhinos. You know, we've heard that, and I guess dinos too, but I hear rhinos more often. And I think to myself, would you really rather them? not be Republicans? Would you really rather them take that R and get rid of it and put a D D there instead? Um, Do we not need to stop expecting everyone to groupthink? Isn't it okay that Joe Manchin is, shouldn't we be thankful that he's a Democrat on some issues, even if we don't agree with him on all of them? Well, I don't think we're expecting him to be a Democrat on all issues. It's just the issues that I think are challenging our country the most, like voting rights, like climate change, like Challenge the most to you. Do you think that voting rights and climate change are the most important things to your parents? No, but they're the, they're the issues that I think take the most to reform in the sense that these are big issues that take systemic change. And but are they the I most important for- to most people? I mean, I can understand why, you're, why the younger generation would see climate change as a very systemic, a very important and pressing issue. Um, I can understand why someone who had lost their family to gun violence would see gun control as a pressing and primary issue. But aren't we asking people to have our priority, put our priorities first? Like if I, when, when, before gay marriage was legal, if I expected someone to vote for the candidate who supported same-sex marriage, 
wouldn't that be me saying, you need to put my needs before your own? <laughs> um, is it okay to do that? I mean, it, it, voting rights is important to me and to you, and I love that you love it, and I'm with you on most of the issues, but I wonder if we have gotten too selfish um, and maybe younger generations have gotten to a point where they're so used to having what they want right in front of them on Twitter or Instagram or their, you know, any entertainment option they want on YouTube that we forget that my priorities might not be somebody else's priorities. How much do we need to be reminded of that? I think you definitely have a point in that. The reason why I think voting rights is such a big issue and why I think we're in such a big debate about this is I think because it just matters so much just for the foundation of our democracy, our constitution, our um, system of government. And so while it may not matter to someone who is maybe living out in Wyoming or Alaska, I think just if we want to build up from there, we need to establish some sort of consensus on where our democracy stands and have at least some sort of agreement on something as fundamental as infrastructure, climate change, voting rights, and get that set before we can address other issues and find consensus where, where fundamental rights matter. Victor! <laughs> Victor, Victor, Victor! <laughs> you just said we need to get consensus on infrastructure, but 30 minutes ago, you weren't satisfied with the consensus that they found on infrastructure. Sorry, not not consent, but more, more we have to like get these issues addressed. Um, they're trying to! And think boldly. At, <laughs> they're trying to, but they're not bold enough for... Um, they're not bold enough. They're right, not bold right. enough for some yeah. folks, right? So right. Do, they need, do we need to stop expecting everything to be our way? Listen, if I had my way, we'd spend an ass ton on infrastructure. We'd change the, the Constitution to, ban, to make uh, gerrymandering constitutionally not possible and campaign finance. We'd totally, I mean, I'm with you on so many, so many of these things. But at some point, don't we have to realize, shit, as much as I want 100% of things my way, if I won't even accept 95% of what I want, then I'm not going to get any, anything, right? At some point, do we have to dream and hope and push and keep striving for the bold stuff while also accepting, damn, we got a little bit of a, we got a win here and we got $1.5 trillion when had we not been in the majority, we would have gotten jack shit, Right. I mean, because the, that think, is the alternative, yeah, not yeah. being in power. And, and you know, right. if we've gotten rid of the filibuster, then when that day comes, and God forbid it's gonna, um, <laughs> if we've gotten rid of the filibuster, then we can, be, we can rest assured that nothing, we'll get nothing that we want, and we'll stop nothing that we want to stop, right? I'm fine with, so, so two things. I think, you, I think you encapsulated my argument much better than I did in, in that. Oh, God, in the that's the first that, time know, I've be, ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, though, I think, I think like, like these bold, we push Democrats on bold, big, progressive ideas. I think that's the norm. I think that's the culture now. I think that's just young people expect that from Democrats. We'll settle for something that might be smaller, but I think it's that notion of we need to push for these big solutions. And in terms of the filibuster, at least for me, I don't see getting rid of the filibuster. You know, the biggest argument against it, I think, is that if we get rid of we get rid of the filibuster now, that Republicans will abuse it once they get in power. I'm fine with that. If you win an election, then you, I think you deserve to use power how you want. 
but I think I'm writing that right down. Now, unless we- I'm writing that down, and God forbid this doesn't happen. But in in four years, when they decide to reban same sex marriage or or ship everybody back to their home, I don't know. Who knows? I'm gonna call you back and see if you still feel the same way. <laughs> And I, and I guess, like, the magic of that is that also, like, because, you know, it's one thing to debate about the filibuster, but also, like, if that does happen, we do have House elections every two years to prevent something as big as, you know, if, if they have power for four years. We have those checks to prevent something huge from happening. I, I take, you know, the 2018 midterm elections as an example. You know, if that didn't happen, imagine what Trump or the Republicans could have done to issues like health care uh, uh, to voting rights, to anything like that. So I think, you know, granted, it's, those it's two years, those two year things only matter if things are not gerrymandered so much that what only only thirty seats in the U.S. House are even competitive anymore. Competitive, so yeah, we yeah. got to get rid of gerrymandering. But uh oh, Victor, you didn't accept that when Joe Manchin offered it. So. I guess you're screwed in two years when those things come around, right? <laughs> I feel like I feel like at those moments, like we want everything we want right now, but when it doesn't have everything we want in it and we vote against it, like Peter DeFazio is saying he's going to be against the Senate thing, then four years from now, when all of the roads and bridges in Oregon are completely crumbling and he says, damn, why didn't we do something about it? People are going to be able to turn to him and say, well, they offered you $1.5 trillion, but you voted against it because it wasn't $2 trillion. Um, and, and I just wonder if we have enough foresight as, as humans, as Americans, if we have a long enough attention span to look forward and say, okay, am I going to regret not being okay with this in 10 years, you know, when, when that when – that, building falls down or that bridge falls down is anybody going to care that it did not include tax increases on the wealthiest one percent when hundreds died you know what i mean um yeah well you take that and go with it where you where you want i I think i i think um you know i guess i'll just propose a thought experiment is that if we didn't think in terms of these bold solutions or these bold policies. I don't even think it would be $1.5 trillion. I'll I think give you that. Unless we, I, I, think, I think we have to aim the flagpole so high now, and I think we have to change at least Democrats and, and how we think about issues. I think part of kind of getting, you know, sure, it may not be three trillions, but it's sure higher than if we were to think about, you know, if we started at 1.5 trillion. So I think it's, yes, it's, it's setting the flagpole high. It's setting, you know, you know, where we want to see. It's you know, really kind of seeing the biggest, the boldest solutions. Sure, we may not get there, but we want to see that happen because otherwise it would be much smaller and I guess more dangerous for our democracy if that doesn't happen. So, so I think we do have to aim high enough. And if it doesn't happen, sure, I, I agree with you that, yes, you know, it's better than nothing, but we do have to aim high. And I think that's what young people, I think that's what Democrats or young Democrats um, hope to see done. Uh, I'm with life. you there. I'm all for aiming high. But, but, but if you don't hit it, my position at least is accept, accept that your high aspirations did get you to $1.5 trillion instead of... 500 billion and vote for that fucker (laughs) oh god we're gonna have to have an explicit thing on this episode now um i want to quickly move we had a lot of good questions for you because people know you from the other Mm -hmm. show um and i'm gonna see if i can and can narrow them down to just some of the best um 
Jackie from L.A. asked, how, how important is it for students to meet face-to-face? I think she's talking about the COVID pandemic. You, you cut, touched on that a bit earlier, but, but answer Jackie's question. How important is it for students to meet face-to-face? So I dreaded online learning. Uh, I, every single one of my friends also dreaded my uh, online learning because I think there's this special connection for students when they when they do interact in the classroom. And I think when classrooms are conducted in a way that really encourages collaboration and, and working together, it's just, you can't really replicate it on Zoom, even if you're in breakout sessions or even when, you know, professors or teachers try to get people to talk. It's just not the same. And I think any form of in-person learning and face-to-face interaction is good in the sense that it builds our social skills in the sense that we are able to see friends, but also in the sense that we get more out of our education and we learn more just by being around each other. And um, I, I know now with COVID, it seems like, you know, we're gonna have to wear masks indoors and, and kind of really um, take more precautions indoors. But I think that essence of face-to-face learning, I am all for schools, you know, taking precautions, but I think students do need to be back in the classroom this year um, to get that experience of, of in-person education, being able to talk with people face-to-face. Nina from San Diego, should we be worried about the power of tech companies? Hmm. That's a really good question because, you know, I, I often get asked, and, I, and it, this kind of relates to, to this question in the sense that, you know, it's sometimes hard to distinguish between the difference of, you know, millennials and Gen Z because millennials are more kind of, they grew up in this digital age where it was something newer, whereas Gen Zers, we really, social media is like our second language and we use social media so much and so frequently and it's become our sort of brand that, you know, I don't think that we could live without social media. On the other hand, I think that because of the amount of power and the amount of misinformation that spreads on social media, it's one thing to use social media for organizing for politics to think about our own brand, but it's another thing I think for social media is to be abused by, you know, conspiracy theorists, by groups, and then for that misinformation to go farther and then in turn, you know, disrupt, you know, how people think, our democracy. So I think there needs to be some regulation. I'm no expert in uh, how to reform that, but I think that in some way we need to somehow root out that misinformation, prevent that from happening on social media platforms because it goes far um, and it spreads much faster than uh, truth. Jason from Boston, big cities this week. Um, Jason from Boston, (laughs) political commercials strike me and my friends as so fake. What do you think the best ways for politicians to communicate with younger generations are? Oh, I I totally agree. I, I, you know, what comes to mind is, you know, our attention spans in terms of the younger generation, I think for Gen Zers, it's seven to eight seconds. What I found really interesting is if you were to look at, (laughs) I know it's, Good God, that is just, doesn't that, isn't that a little depressing for you? It is, but I think, you know, if you were to look at President, one of the things I really noticed once President Biden took over was the amount of what they call on Instagram reels, um, R-E-E-L-S, where it's just short six, five, six, seven second video is a President Biden saying something. I think things are changing to adapt to that attention span. Of course, I think, there are downsides to that in the sense that, you know, if you're presenting a complex news articles, you can't get that down in five, six, seven seconds. Well, that's why you just but read I'm, the headline. Right, right. But in terms of how we organize, in terms of how we reach people, communicate with people, you know, I think, you know, 
getting things down so that it's accessible, so it's engaging. I think we're really starting to change that because of young people and I, and I guess because of our shorter attention spans. But I think for political ads, for we're really starting to see that change and I think you can see that on President Biden's social media page. It's no longer the two minute long videos, it's just short five, six, seven second long videos. Um, so which means that, which means that when tw 20 years from now, when I'm 60 something and you're, <laughs> 40, uh, that will mean that the attention span will be, what, two seconds? <laughs> you, yeah. Is that essentially where we're headed, you think? <laughs> you mean, go, back and look at the, go back and look at magazine yeah. ads in the 60s and 70s, and they included so much copy, like a full explanation of what every product did, yeah. and yeah. slowly we got less and less. How much right. less can we get if it's really just five or seven seconds now? Isn't the obvious next step that my grandkids will have attention spans as long as a blink, right? As long as a blink. But I think because we grew up in such a digital, you know, driven society and we, we grew up on social media, you know, our attention spans are shorter if I think unless, you know, we really promote the kind of idea, the habit of, I think in the classroom, critical thinking, reading, looking through, kind of looking beneath the surface of just what you see on Instagram, on headlines. And so, Do you think your generation think is better at doing that than others? Because, because uh, if, you look at, if you look at some of the conspiracy theories and the misinformation that gets spread on places like Facebook, you know, I'm thinking of COVID stuff or uh, QAnon type stuff, um, do you think that the younger generations are better at being critical thinkers than older generations are? Here's what I say. I, I'd say that younger people look at issues not from one lens. We try to seek out as much information as possible. This really struck me after the Black Lives Matter, or after um, George Floyd got killed during the Black Lives Matter protest over the summer. The amount of people who I saw and my friends who weren't politically active before, but as a result of those protests and that movement, they started posting stories. They started posting um, you know, different infographics on their stories to get this education out there. And when we talk about climate change or racial justice, we realize that we can't just think about things in one lens in the sense that you have to include different genders, different races, um, different perspective, perspectives in the conversation, or else you have an incomplete view of that issue. And so I think, you know, in terms of whether or not we're, we're better critical thinkers, I'm not quite sure, but what I think that we are better at is including more perspectives and seeking out more information from different people from different backgrounds, from different demographics. Christian from Nashville, last one. Could the Republican Party ever win you over? On issues when it pertains to truth and facts, I, I'd say someone like Liz Cheney, uh, if it had to be someone like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger over someone like Jim Jordan or Kevin McCarthy, I think, yes. Um, but if it were, you know, something... Like Republicans, Democrats, it would have to be, you know, if, some, if Democrat did something so, you know, horrific or, or so abhorrent, um, maybe. But I'd say it, it takes a lot for me to get persuaded by Republicans just on the issues because they don't acknowledge truth and facts around January 6th and just basic tenets of our democracy and the constitution. The current Republican the current Party in its, yeah. in, its yeah. in its specifically in its mega state. But yeah. President Eisenhower would have been a uh, Democrat today and President Kennedy would have been a Republican. So parties do mm -hmm. flip their uh, flip, right. uh, quite a bit when it comes to their 
policy positions. Um, I got to say, so my, my, one of my last questions for you is, what for, what's the first office you're going to run for? Do you know? <laughs> oh, God. That, running for office is a little scary for me. I don't know. It's kind of the thought of so, like having been on you know, a campaign and having you know, helped President Biden's campaign over the fall and taking my first quarter off. It just seems like there's so much work involved. I'm not quite sure what office I'll run for, which the first one will be. It seems like a really cool process, but I guess... The thought of a young person, you know, I'm 19 now. I won't be able to run for office, you know, until at least after college. I'm not thinking you could run for house yet. right now. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I don't know. It seems it seems daunting as a 19 year old to, to run for something as big as the house. Um, and I prefer trust to, me as someone who's run for the house. The <laughs> yeah, stupidest you know best, person yeah. on the campaign. The stupidest person on the campaign <laughs> is the candidate at all times, always. <laughs> One, the dumbest and the most incompetent is the candidate in every situation. Mine, of course, especially included. Um, it's it's only a lot of work if you aren't, if you, well, if you hate having to raise money, which is a pain in the ass, and uh, no one should have to do that. But we're going to fix that because we're going to figure out a way to compromise and get it through in something. Um, but, uh, but. Is if if you're if you're good at speaking to people and having conversations with them and expressing your opinions, it's not that much work, and you're very 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 good at that. And then all the hard real work is done by staffers who don't get any credit or uh, attention. Um, so, I mean, don't I, let that part say, scare uh, you to death. <laughs> un- unpaid interns too. That that's a big thing that I notice. Just unpaid interns as well. But that, that, wait, that, there are people who for- there are people who work for campaigns for free because I could promise you I didn't have any of those folks. <laughs> Everybody's looking for a paycheck. It was just it blew my mind. Um, I got to tell you of of the landscape of of political podcasts and and there's a whole bunch of them and Politicon's got four. Uh, I got to be honest, I think your show with Jill Weinbanks is one of the most interesting and unique and important, really, uh, conversations. Because I've said many times, I don't believe that our divisions in America are any more so based on politics or based on race or based on gender as much as they are based on generational differences and the and to to hear the two of you who who come like i said before from similar political backgrounds in in you know policy wise uh have discussions about these things is fascinating so anyone who's listening right now if you haven't already listened to igen politics please check it out Jill Winebanks Victor Shee um and it comes out on what day of the week you guys tape on what day so we usually tape on Tuesdays, and it comes out on Wednesday mornings. Yeah, midnight or so on Wednesday, late on late on Tuesday night, early on Wednesday. It's it's. I almost I almost recommend it more than this one. If I recommended it more than this one, then I think I would make the the Politicon folks upset. But I got to tell you, I really do. So if you're listening, oh. check out Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shee on um, iGen Politics here on the Politicon podcast family and Victor she tell me please how the heck are we going to get along I think it starts by listening I think um we have to listen to each other but I think also we have to be clear-eyed about where we are as a country um and the solutions we need to get passed but I think listening is first I think for me the biggest way to get along and 
see where the other side is coming from.